Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein, back from vacation. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters here in Boston. And I'm recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, August 16th, and here's what's on the docket this week. How should Medicare deal with paying for pricey CAR-T cancer therapies? Dr. Peter Bach, the drug pricing researcher, is out with a new paper on that question, and he joins us to talk about it. It's not easy deciphering venture capital lingo. We'll head back to the classroom to bring you a primer on all that jargon that gets tossed around when biotech startups raise an oversubscribed Series A round. The latest analysis of experimental Alzheimer's drugs finds that literally zero are being tested in late-stage clinical trials to treat moderate to severe forms of the disease. STAT senior writer Sharon Begley joins us to ask the provocative question, why isn't there more outrage over this empty pipeline? And finally, we'll bring you a lightning round. We'll dispense rapid-fire takes on pessimists on Wall Street, the exodus from Gilead Sciences, and a gene therapy monopoly. How much should drugs cost? To Peter Bach, the answer is almost always cheaper. Dr. Bach is director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at New York City's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And from there, he comes up with ideas and pushes for policies that would more closely align the price of drugs with their real value to patients in the healthcare system. Now, as you might expect, Peter's job and advocacy for lower value-based pricing often puts him at odds with biotech and pharma companies who would rather not have anyone interfere with how they calculate the cost of their new medicines. So this week, Peter wrote an article for the New England Journal of Medicine in which he takes on the high cost of a new class of personalized cancer immunotherapy drugs known as CAR-T therapies. Peter is our guest today to talk about the article, which calls on Medicare to spur competition among the CAR-T manufacturers in order to lower costs. Peter, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. So before we get into some of your ideas, I was thinking, let's step back for some background. There are two approved CAR-T therapies on the market today, Kim Raya from Novartis and Yes Carta from Gilead Sciences. And each is expensive, costing about $400,000 for a one-time treatment. But because both Kim Raya and Yes Carta are approved for the same type of lymphoma, Medicare is conceivably in a position to angle for a bargain. So, Peter, in as plain a language as possible, what are Medicare's options here? Medicare has quite a few options beyond what they do traditionally, which is to just pay whatever the manufacturer charges. And one of the reasons they have an option here is there are two CAR-T therapies that the FDA has said are for the same exact indication, this adult lymphoma. And so Medicare has tools in its tool chest to either get the manufacturers of these drugs to compete with one another for the, if you will, the shelves of Medicare by lowering their prices, or if it doesn't know which one's better, to actually get the manufacturers to engage in a clinical trial to compare them. Maybe give us some more specifics, or like if you were running Medicare today, what would you be doing right now as they kind of assess these two CAR-T therapies? In the paper, I outline two questions that need to be answered before Medicare chooses what policy to use to pay for CAR-T. The first is, Do we have two products that are basically the same and interchangeable? If so, that's easy. Medicare has a bunch of tools it can use to get the two to compete. It can put out for bid the opportunity to sell to Medicare. It can put them into what's called the same reimbursement code and have them battle it out on price. It can do some sort of other competitive acquisition, such as the Trump administration 
has talked about, where the manufacturer who's willing to sell their product for less gets the market, or at least a bigger share of the market. But the other question we have to settle is, these CAR-T therapies come with lots of other costs. The drugs make people very sick. They're sick in the first place. They can end up in the hospital, in the intensive care unit, needing other expensive treatments. And we don't really know if those other costs are the same for these two products or different. And it's why Medicare should think carefully about paying for CAR-T as a package, not just the drug, but for all of these other costs together, and then let the manufacturers fight it out for market share based on the cost of that package, where if one of the drugs has less costly side effects, it can charge a higher price for the product than the other one. And so do you think Medicare's eventual decision will have an effect on how private insurers approach paying for CAR-T? The reason Medicare is doing this analysis is one of the big private insurers that runs Medicare's private plan called Medicare Advantage asked Medicare to do it. United Healthcare said, level the playing field for us. Make a single decision for the whole Medicare program so we know what to do and we're not in a position where we're paying for a half a million dollar therapy and our competitors selling Medicare Advantage are not. So the cancer patient population that is amenable to these CAR-T therapies today is pretty small. It's thousands of patients compared with, for example, hepatitis C, where those drugs were expensive, but there were millions of patients who needed treatment. Do you see the future of CAR-T therapies growing to a level where the costs might overwhelm the healthcare system at that $400,000 price tag? Well, first of all, the hope would be that there are many more entrants to the CAR-T market and if Medicare and other payers take, you know, what are actually pretty simple steps to get some price competition, that we will have see the prices of these products fall, making them more affordable. But the truth is we have the capability of tolerating or accommodating much more spending in, for pharmaceuticals than we have right today. The question is, do we want to use our collective and societal resources to pay for these drugs for rare conditions or alternatively use that money for other things, whether it's other healthcare services or focused on population health or education or infrastructure. So the problem isn't that we're running out of money. The problem is that we are not thinking carefully about how we're allocating that money and pharmaceutical spending has risen to a level where we do have to think about how it trades off against these major other societal investments that are getting shortchanged by healthcare. So, and finally, do you feel like people who are pushing for change in the world of drug pricing and, and specifically how the government pays for drugs are making substantive progress? Do you feel like the pendulum is kind of swinging in your direction? I, I don't see a pendulum coming, but I do see incremental change. And I'd argue, looking back over, let's say, the last five years, the discussion about drug pricing has gone from there's not a problem at all to we have a serious problem. Drug pricing and affordability of drugs is the number one concern amongst both Republican and Democratic voters. It's widely viewed that price hikes of existing drugs are a problem or at least not market-based. Uh, both uh, the president and uh, Hillary Clinton ran on platforms that focused on pharmaceutical pricing. And we're seeing movements both in the public sector, Medicare's move with Medicare Advantage, uh, step therapy being an example, 
and the private sector, CVS launching a formulary that's going to include cost-effectiveness towards a more value-based or health technology-based approach to pricing. And so that those are big steps, and I think we have, to some extent, Martin Shkreli to thank for it, and Heather Bresch, and the EpiPen, and even Valtrap. All right, Peter, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for calling. It's back-to-school season, so we thought we'd celebrate by heading back to the classroom. And for today's lesson, we're going to ask... What in God's name are startups talking about when they raise venture capital funding? Let's start with an example. Just this week, a British gene therapy company called Orchard Therapeutics put out a breathless press release announcing, quote, the completion of an oversubscribed $150 million Series C financing, end quote. So let's break this down then. What does it mean that this was a Series C round? So Damien, you know, it's as simple as reciting your ABCs. So for biotech startups, uh, the first big infusion of cash from venture capital investors comes in what's called the Series A round. The next time they need money, they raise their Series B round. Then comes their Series C round. As the company matures, some of the venture capital firms that were there at the beginning might stick it out, while others might peel off and be replaced by venture capitalists that specialize in later stage investments. So what does it mean that this was oversubscribed? Well, that's funny you'd ask because it kind of means nothing. So by definition, oversubscribed means that there was more money on the table than they ended up taking. But as Michael Gilman, who's a serial biotech entrepreneur, and and I think he's the CEO of two biotech startups right now, uh, he pointed out on Twitter, that's not a very big deal. That literally always happens. That's just kind of what fundraising is like in biotech nowadays. All right. So a bunch of venture capital investors gave this Orchard Therapeutics $150 million. What do the investors get in return? So they get equity. That's an ownership stake in the company. And that usually doesn't mean too much at this stage for early stage companies. That's because, of course, they have no revenue and no hope for revenue for years. But the hope for the VCs is that they're going to be able to make money someday by cashing out that stake, either with a successful initial public offering or by selling the company. And so how do they decide the size of the ownership stake that the investors get? So that's all part of determining the company's valuation. There are a lot of factors that play in. The management team, the size of the market, the novelty of the science. That's the origin of when you hear a company described as a unicorn. You know, that's a moniker indicating that the company is worth over $1 billion. So let's talk about what this all means. It's a sign of strength when a company raises more money, right? Not necessarily. So it may seem like a mark of success if you're continuously able to, like you said, raise more money from venture capitalists. But what it means is you're selling off more of the equity in the company. So you're arguably diluting the stake of your earlier investors. So when companies go back to the well time and time again, it's possible that they're actually kind of eroding the value that they created before. Okay, so it might not always be the best thing in the world to raise more cash, but it is impressive, right? I mean, if a company raises a lot of money, people take notice. So it used to be a big deal when a company raised, say, $100 million in a Series A round. But these days, it's become commonplace. So already this year, there have been seven of these Series A rounds of at least $100 million. That's according to a recent story from BioCentury. And if you look back all the way to 2014, there have been 19 such huge Series A rounds. So I think it's pretty clear that $100 million doesn't buy what it used to. 
next segment, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease. But first, let's talk about HIV. So flashback to the 1980s, and when virologists and drug developers were too slow in finding ways to save the lives of people with HIV-AIDS, activists held demonstrations at the New York Stock Exchange and the FDA, demanding for changes in the system. But nothing remotely like that has happened with Alzheimer's disease, for which there hasn't been a new drug in about 15 years. And as the latest analysis from Cleveland Clinic researchers underlines, clinical trials are enrolling patients earlier and earlier, when they're still cognitively normal. And nobody's trying to treat moderate to severe Alzheimer's. So why is that? And why isn't there more outrage about it? Stat senior writer Sharon Begley wrote a provocative piece exploring those questions, and she's here to talk about her reporting. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Damien. So for starters, to kind of play devil's advocate, when you talk to scientists or people in the drug industry, they'll say it's not about abandoning patients at all, but rather that they're just following the science and that to the extent there has been positive tendrils of data suggesting that they can treat Alzheimer's, it tells them to go earlier and earlier in the disease. Right, because the prevailing theory of Alzheimer's, namely the amyloid hypothesis, has held that if you get rid of the amyloid plaques, then you can treat people, you can maybe even cure people. And as we've seen in hundreds, I think now, of clinical trial failures, that has not worked. So yes, as you say, the science has suggested that you have to go earlier and earlier. However, that's only if you believe that amyloid is the only way to address this disease. Um, And as Rebecca said, the last drug approval for Alzheimer's was in 2003. So I just looked at these numbers and asked, well, why are patients, their families, advocates not up in arms about this? Um, And again, it's not just that the pharmaceutical companies are, you know, doing something outrageous, but also why has there not been more support for something other than the amyloid hypothesis? So one thing I've heard in my own reporting is that, by definition, patient activists for Alzheimer's can really only be patient activists for a short period of time. You know, they might be really involved in advocacy and giving speeches and giving media interviews for a few years in the mild stage of the disease. But then as their minds deteriorate, they gradually cut back on these sort of public appearances until they can't speak at all. How much do you think this no survivors phenomenon plays into what you've described here? I think it's a huge factor. Um, and that is also true for Alzheimer's families, um, their, their caregivers, because the burden of caring for someone with this devastating disease really leaves you no time, you know, psychically, emotionally, realistically, to go down to the FDA or to pharma companies and say, do better. Um, but that has led to what one of the researchers described to me as therapeutic nihilism, the idea that nothing can be done here. But just to underline what's at stake, so there are five and a half million people in this country who have Alzheimer's. And given how long it takes for a drug to be be developed, none of them likely are going to be treated. Their disease is hardly going to be slowed. It is not going to be stopped, and it is certainly not being reversed. So we are abandoning an entire huge multi-million person cohort and telling them, we've got nothing for you today, and we will have nothing for you in five years, maybe even in 10 years. So Sharon, you cited a pretty stunning statistic in your story. There is exactly one phase two or phase three study studying whether a drug can alter the course of the disease in patients who already have severe dementia. And that comes from the drug maker Neurotrope, which is testing a compound called Bryostatin. Why is Neurotrope bucking the trend? What makes them different? Well, they think that this compound, which has been studied for boy, more than 10 years in the usual, you know, first cell cultures and then lab animals. And now they're into a second phase two study um, in 
patients, obviously, um, they think that this compound not only can address the amyloid plaques, but also has an effect on the synapses and neurons that are lost in the disease. And even if you believe the amyloid hypothesis, once that once there are plaques in the brain, patients lose synapses and neurons, and that's thought to be why you can never reverse the devastation of the disease. You know, Neurotrope, led by its um, president and chief science officer, Dan Alcon, just can spout reams of evidence saying that bryostatin can restore and maintain synapses um, and neurons. So obviously, everybody hopes that they're right. We'll see. Um, Their previous reporting on phase two clinical trials has been a little bit dicey. Um, They, you know, did some statistical analysis that did not meet with everybody's approval, shall we say. Um, But they're, you know, moving forward. And the other thing that we should say here about the clinical trials in Alzheimer's, um, just to address something that some, you know, readers and others said, look at the number of trials. There are a ton, actually, that are in moderate to severe. So I just want to emphasize most... Almost all of those, again, with the exception of neurotrope, are for what are called symptoms of Alzheimer's. So that has to do with patients lose the ability to sleep well, they become agitated. So there are absolutely all these other very, very difficult to live with um, symptoms of the disease. And no one is saying that we should we should ignore those. Absolutely. If you can help people who are otherwise agitated in a way that they can't, you know, even remotely um, be helped by their caregivers, that would be a good drug to have. But what I'm focusing on are are what are called disease-modifying agents, i.e. those that would have an effect on the actual clinical course of the disease. And that's where the patients have been really totally abandoned. And Sharon, I want to ask you about the reaction from readers to your story. You know, one thing I've found uh, reporting on medicine and health is people love happy stories. And this story is not happy. It unfortunately is not happy. I'm trying to remember a happy Alzheimer's story that I've written, but I am coming up blank. So yes, Um, a lot of the pushback has been, um, you know, well, what do you expect? The science says that we can't do this. So don't, you know, Eli Lilly has dumped multi-billions of dollars into a failed compound. Um, Other drug companies um, have as well. So what do you expect from them? And I think the answer is simply, you know, we should be looking for something other than the drugs that are predicated on a very questionable hypothesis, that we should be looking more broadly. And why are patients not demanding that both the research that is funded by their tax dollars, i.e. NIH, um, and what is done with that research, why is there not more, uh, you know, a a more uh, sort of wide-ranging approach to dealing or trying to address this disease, something other than amyloid, and also something other than tau. And just a tiny bit of hope, um, there are, you're beginning to see some other approaches, some anti-inflammatory approaches, um, a recognition that at least some cases of Alzheimer's might have something to do with infection. There was that very neat paper showing herpes infection at much higher levels in Alzheimer's brains compared to the brains of healthy people. So again, we're beginning to see that there might be some new approaches taken. But you know, for five and a half million people, it's too late. And due to overwhelming popularity, we bring you another lightning round. So let's get started. First up, let's talk about the way that Wall Street reacted to a high-profile drug approval. Yeah, so last week, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals won its first-ever FDA approval. Um, This has been years and years in the making, and we talk all about these research programs and the investment in it, and etc. But the whole point of biotech is to 
make a drug that wins FDA approval. And yet, Rebecca, as you mentioned, their stock price fell after that fact. And the same thing happened to a company called Amicus Therapeutics, which likewise got its first FDA approval the same day. So, Adam, why are investors down after what is ostensibly good news? Well, I think, you know, what you're seeing here with Al Nylum or with Amicus is this idea that, you know, you can you can sort of tell a story, this great story about developing drugs for diseases, but then you get approval and then it, you have to start selling those drugs. And, and the commercial world of healthcare is a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult. And I think that's where you see these companies, the stock prices sort of sell off because there's a lot of uncertainty about how well these drugs will do commercially. So moving on, Andrew Cheng, the chief medical officer at Gilead, is leaving the company. And that's interesting because it comes in the context of over the past six months, we've seen four top executives from the company either leave or announce plans to do so. What is going on at Gilead? It seems like the entire C-suite at Gilead is emptied out over the last few weeks. I mean, we we talked about this uh, the the departure of the CEO and chairman just a few weeks ago here on the podcast. And I think it's remarkable. Uh, you know, Andrew Cheng was at Gilead for 19 years, and just five months ago, he was named chief medical officer. You know, you got to think that that was a dream job that he'd been eyeing for years, and so I think it really speaks to the transition the company is going through that he would leave so soon. And finally. There was some news uh, this week about Express Scripts and gene therapy, right, Rebecca? Yeah, so you usually think of Express Scripts as this kind of agitator pressing drug companies to lower their prices. But Express Scripts was in the news this week for a different reason. Express Scripts is in talks with the makers of experimental gene therapies for hemophilia about becoming the sole distributor when those treatments are available on the market. It also kind of plays into the idea often put forth by the drug industry that these middlemen like Express Scripts are not necessarily doing much to lower the cost of drugs. Um, Express Scripts chief medical officer had a quote in the Reuters story uh, that broke this news saying that even at a million dollars, these gene therapies will be a bargain. And that's easy to say if you end up being the exclusive distributor of them and thus the exclusive recipient of a cut of that million dollars. Yeah. And I think this speaks to the complexity of these gene therapies pricing. You know, these are therapies that can cost one million dollars or more and people are still trying to figure out how they're going to get reimbursed. And, you know, Express Scripts being this kind of opportunistic pharmacy benefits manager sees obviously sees a business opportunity there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting uh, when Steve Miller in that story was quoted noting that Express Scripts has a wall between its benefit management and specialty pharmacy businesses. You know, it reminds me of the banks that, of course, have a nominally independent analyst research arm. But at the same time, those analysts have lots of incentive to play nice with companies so that bankers can get deals. Yeah, I imagine that wall is very thin. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. We want to thank Alex Hogan and Dom Smith, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and as always, Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. You can ask us questions or just rant about how horribly wrong we are about everything we talk about, and you can do that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week. 